Thank you for listening, downloading, sharing, subscribing, commenting, donating, and praying for us. And for going to BrotherLance.com to get the free PDF of this teaching. I've killed better men than you. I've killed better men than you. He would only open hand slap me because it would leave less bruises. That's when he would start to close fist punch me. I was the one he took his anger out on. So even if he was sober and he was mad enough, you know, he'd get his licks in when nobody was looking. The love, I, I know, I, I know that she knew about some of it, but not the level that it got to. But I knew that if I said anything to her about the abuse, I mean, it would break her. I've killed better men than you. My mom and I started getting high when I was together when I was 16. So we got to a point where every day for breakfast, I was doing a couple of lower tap 12s in a Soma. I sold drugs for uh, too many years. Um, and two of those people that I sold to were my oldest daughter and my ex's old, my ex's oldest daughter. They show me the warrant. Um, they come through, search my house. They found where I hid the coke. Person that showed me how to rock up coke on a spoon with a candle. And once I learned how to do that and started smoking crack, it went downhill from there for a while. I mean, a while. Um, you know, I figured if, if the kid had gotten hurt, he'd been on the news or something, so. And it had gotten to a point where um, I graduated, basically, from driving drunk to drinking and driving. I've had two DUIs. And she says, you want to know what your blood alcohol content was? I was like, yeah, sure, I'm curious. It was .4 something. So... You know, the legal limit is 0.08. But um, the amount of vodka bottles that we found in my van was 117. And I don't remember what it was that my ex said to me. She was sitting on the bed and my flip just switched. So I turned around. I'm like, oh, this is where we're going, huh? So I jumped on her, latched onto her throat, started choking her out. And when the the bouts of depression would come and go, when they would come, they'd hit hard. And it just got to a point where I just stopped caring. The drinking was definitely, I felt like it was helping me get over the trauma of my ex leaving, not having somebody to come home to like I was used to. Um, You know, sitting there on the couch during dinner or something, you know, talking about my day or, or talking about her day or you know cracking jokes you know the silence and and the house was deafening if you will the drinking it is pretty much almost cost me everything i'm literally the statistical tragedy of basically losing everything basically because i haven't lost everything yet but praise god um almost hitting rock bottom for you know losing my marriage uh, my kids don't want to talk to me um, losing the house all that stuff for me to make the hard change to get sober 
But when Lance baptized me that day, uh, I definitely felt the spirit move in me. It was a different feeling that I'd ever had from anything else in my life. God showed up for that entire week, every day. Something positive happened every single day. I know God has a plan for me, and I just need to, even when it's going to be hard in the future, um, to remember that just because something's hard or it seems impossible, you know, I know God's got a plan. You know, me hitting, uh, basically almost falling on my face, he stopped me midair, you know? I believe that everything that's happened up to this second right now, me me talking to you guys, is part of his plan, you know? Hmm. Um, I think me getting to a point where I was almost homeless with nothing, what I think God turned into dad and he bent me over his knee, smacked me on the butt. He's like, all right, dude, this is, this, this is what you got. This is what I'm giving you. You need to make the most of it. first part of the testimony that I wrote out, this is my formative years, my adolescence. This will kind of give you guys a bit of background on my stepdad and how I was raised. And he'll be a focal point in a few other sections later on. But one of the um, earliest memories I have, and this is one of the ones that sticks out to me the most because I would never say this to one of my children. Um, my When we lived in Alaska, my parents were having a party. So me and my brother were staying in our separate rooms um one thing people like to do in alaska because it's during especially during the winter time they do these ceramic statues and they'll do half and half so when they fuse them together you've got the mold pieces on it you cut you shave those off and then you can paint it or whatever however you want whatever so my dad had this big giant moose statue that he just bought in a couple of days earlier and decided to let me start carving off the extra molding stuff well, at one point, I ended up breaking off one of the antlers, and I just sat there froze because I'm like, first of all, I can't go out there while they're having a party. Secondly, I don't want to tell my stepdad that I broke this thing off. So a couple, it was probably 10 or 15 minutes or so, give or take. He comes into my room to check on me and sees that the horn was broken off. And this is what he said that has stuck with me my entire life. He had this weird look on his face. He looks at me, and he, he's been in Vietnam. He looks at me and goes, I've killed better men than you. And it, I just, I've never been able to erase it out of my mind. Um, like I said, that's not something I would ever say to somebody, um, even if I thought that I meant it. But to say that to, I think I was 10 or so at the time, to say that to a kid, that's not cool. No. Um, a happy memory I have from Alaska, one of my few, I actually got a 22 one year for Christmas. And, uh, dude, I was, you know, being 10 or 11, what kid's not going to be stoked to get a 22 for Christmas? <laughs> we were, I'm a big gun guy. I grew up a big gun guy person. Um, but he only let me shoot it three times and then it disappeared and never saw it again. Um, there was one night and I don't remember the time frame. It was, it was winter. Um, my dad, and one of his, bu- stepdad, and one of his buddies went out moose hunting 
So it's like 2.33 in the morning, my mom wakes me up. She's like, come look at this moose. They got a moose. They got a moose. So I go out there. This thing was huge. It covered up like a 12-foot trailer. They had its legs splayed out through the sides and tied off. It had, they'd already gutted it out in the field and everything. So we're sitting there looking at it. And uh, my dad goes, or stepdad goes, hey, why don't you jump inside the moose carcass? So I'm like, you know, I'm a kid. I like gross things. So I jumped in there, and they closed it up on me and basically held it shut for a few seconds, you know. Uh, that was, I won't say it's necessarily a traumatizing thing, but it's another one of those things that I dream about once in a while, you know. Not not something you should really do to a kid, but my dad, stepdad thought it was funny. Um, I have loved drawing all my entire life. And my, growing up, my parents encouraged it. Sorry, I'm scrolling through my stuff. Um, my parents encouraged it, but... When I, when I was younger, I always stuck my tongue out a little bit to kind of concentrate. And if my stepdad saw me sticking my tongue out, he'd come up and smack my bottom jaw because for whatever reason, he just didn't like me sticking my tongue out. So every single time I'd bite my tongue, um, once I actually bit through it, so, you know, I'm bleeding everything. So that's a fun story. Uh, let's see. Now we're getting into some of the more abusive stuff. Um Growing up, and this was Alaska, um, when we moved to Texas, when I was getting into pre-teens and into teens, um, as far as the physical abuse goes, when I was younger, he would only open hand slap me because it would leave less bruises. Um, when I got into my teenage years, that's when he would start to close fist punch me. And it was usually only in the back and the sides of the torsos because, you know, you're wearing a shirt pretty much all the time. Um, my brother and I, for aside from last, we had separate bedrooms, but when we moved to Texas, we had bunk beds because it was only a two bedroom house. So I slept on the top bunk and growing up a military kid, you know, sometimes in the movies you see your drill instructor come over and flip the match, flip you off the mattress. My stepdad would do that with me on the top bunk, not all the time, but sometimes. And then one of his favorite things to do, he would, um, grab me back behind my ear and squeeze real hard to a point where a few times his fingernails would dig into the back of my ear and draw blood. Um, I never said anything to my mom about the love. I, I know, I, I know that she knew about some of it, but not the level that it got to. Um, and I never said anything to her because she was so, so codependent. She got married for her first to her first husband at 16 and she basically stayed married to three different guys, including my stepdad for her entire life until her and my stepdad split up. But I knew that if I said anything to her about the abuse, I mean, it would break her. And I had a feeling that, you know, even if she was broken, her being so codependent, she would have stayed with him. So, you know, it, if she had said something to him about it after I told her, that would have made things worse for me. My brother never caught any abuse because he was my dad's naturally born child. Well, let's see. <laughs> Lance reminded me of this one last night. So, uh, one day after school, we get home. My parents aren't home yet. Um, so I found an open pack of my mom's cigarettes sitting on her table. So I grab a cigarette. There was a pack of matches sitting there. So I'm standing by the front door and I was like, all right, I'm going to light the cigarette, leave the door cracked. Cause I'm like, I don't want the smell to be around. When my parents come home, even though they smoked in the house, um, 
so I was standing there at the front door smoking a cigarette and when I went to go flick it out I turned around and my dad was standing right there by the garage door uh, just staring at me I froze I didn't know what to do um, if I had to poop at that time it might have happened uh, but he just had this crazy it's, I've never been able to describe it even when I was telling my mom about the situation um, just he had this crazy crazy look on his face and all he said to me was go to your room until your mom gets home and anytime I knew that my stepdad was mad at me but he wasn't yelling or hitting that almost scared me more than you know I knew the physical abuse would be there at times but when he wouldn't talk to me that's you know when I started getting real worried so my mom and my brother go shopping she comes back and after we eat dinner um, my dad pulls his pack of these green, like 47 feet long grenadine cigars. They weren't 47 feet, obviously. Um, but probably the nastiest cigars ever invented. Uh, so he sits me at the kitchen table. Hold on, glasses fogging up. He sits me at the kitchen table, ties my hands behind the chair, and lights one of these cigars, sticks in my mouth, and tells me, smoke this until it's nub. So, I started smoking it. It got, got down to a nub. My eyes are watering. He lights the second one. Smoke it till it's a nub. Same thing. Eyes are watering. He lights the third one. So I smoked it. Pardon me. At this point, I'm starting to feel a little nauseous. Uh, so he takes that cigar out, unties my hands. He's like, all right, go get in the shower and go to bed. When I got up from that chair and walked to the bathroom, I'd never... Like, I can equate it to being so drunk that you literally, I mean, you're stumbling sideways. You're that, I mean, that's the way I felt. So when I wanted to go take a shower, I just had to sit in the tub until my, like, the world stopped spinning. Um, my mom, you know, I know she didn't like it, but, you know, she was, she was, she, it would basically be, she's going to stand up to my stepdad about as much as my brother and I would. Not happening. Um, he ruled by fear and definitely with an iron fist. Uh, let's see. It's another good one. So our backyard in Alaska, we had a sizable piece of land and there was this farmer's pond. The farmer didn't live there anymore. So we all went down and played around the water. You didn't get in it cause there had old farming equipment and stuff in it. But just to the right of that pond, there was this old guy who had just got done building a house. And his old house was sitting behind his new house, and he had it half torn down. Um, one whole half of the outside of the house was off, but he was tearing it down slow. So me and a couple of friends of mine and I, we started using it as sort of a clubhouse. Again, found a partially open or an open pack of cigarettes. So I took a couple of them for me and my friends. And uh, I had no idea how flammable fiberglass was at the time. And so... When we were done with the cigarettes, we were all getting ready to go home because it was getting close to dinner time. Well, I flicked my cigarette down into the basement area. Didn't realize that it hit the fiberglass. And, um, you know, we left. It didn't start smoking right away because it was partially damp because, you know, with no outside wall, um, the whole basement was a little damp. So after we get, get done eating, um, we start hearing sirens and they're getting closer and closer. Well, in our dining room, we had this huge picture window. So I look out the back window and our little clubhouse was ablaze. 
So, again, I start freaking out. I don't say anything to my parents, my stepbrother. All I could think about was, I'm in trouble. Then I start thinking about my friends, like, okay, they're probably in trouble, too. Well, once they get the fire put out, um, we get a knock on the door, and it's an Alaska State Trooper. So he's talking to my parents, and basically telling my parents that the only reason that the old guy wasn't going to sue us is because we did him a favor by burning the house down. So... As punishment for burning down a half dilapidated house, uh, my dad cleaned everything out of my room except for clothes, my bed, and that was it. He put my the desk that I had in my room, he put at the end of our hallway. And for one whole year, all I was allowed to do was go to school, come home, do homework, and read. And then I went to bed. Rinse and repeat for an entire year. Mm -hmm. I took my meals at that desk. I was not involved in any family functions. If my stepdad, mom, and brother went out to go do something or whatever, I got sent over to the neighbor's house, and I was basically sat in a corner, and I read. That's where I got my love for books from, was being grounded for a year. I don't even know what movies or TV shows were popular during that year. Um... So, yeah, I don't know. I've never met anybody that's been grounded for a whole year. But, yeah, for my life, that was, um, you know, sitting at the end of that hallway. It was, I don't know, I think it, it wasn't so much the books for me that bothered me. It was getting excluded from, like, family dinners or going to hang out with them to do stuff. Oh, let's see where we at Ah, this is kind of a precursor for... Uh, um, my alcoholism. So when my stepdad would take me hunting in Alaska, he always bought, brought a little pint of blackberry brandy with him to stay warm. Um, so, you know, we'd go hunting. We'd be out there for most of the day. And when he would take a sip of this blackberry brandy, he would hand it to me. He's like, you got to stay warm. So he was encouraging me drinking with him. And I remember a few times I'd go to take like just one little sip to kind of, you know, satisfy him to get him off my back. And there'd be times, you know, when you see somebody taking a sip off something and somebody walks up and they like tilt the bottle. So you just get more washed down your throat. He'd do that a few times. Um, his, my stepdad's abusiveness mostly surfaced when, um, he was drinking. Uh, when he was sober, that's when I would get more of the happier memories. Um, but dude, even if he was mad enough, you know, it, it, I was the one he took his anger out on. So even if he was sober and he was mad enough, you know, he'd get his licks in when nobody was looking. Okay. Now we're going on to the drinking and drugging. This one's longer because it's literally drugs and drinking have, when I'm 45 now, so. Literally over half my life has been consumed with this. Oh, yeah. Here's another fun one. And I didn't think about this till I was talking to Lancelot yesterday. Uh, four or five years old, we lived in New Hampshire on the Air Force Base. And a lot of times after they'd get off work, my dad would have some of his buddies come over and, you know, they'd drink a few beers to unwind. Well, uh... 
every once in a while, you know, you get that little bit of head at the bottom of the bottle. My dad would be like, here, come take, drink this, and then go get me another one. There'd be times where the bottle would be half full and his buddies would be sitting around and he'd have me come over and take sips of his beer because everybody thought it was funny. Everybody got a good laugh from it. So um, between Blackberry Brandy and being four or five and constantly taking sips of beer, I think I had a predilection for uh, the taste of alcohol. I'm not going to say that it's what it is, but, you know, the correlation of the two is uncanny. Um, I tried pop for the first time when I was 12 living in Alaska. Um, and I tried to justify it, but like, well, it's wintertime, it's dark, you know, uh, or you get sunshine maybe four hours a day. So uh, I just t- chalked it up as being bored. Um, I didn't smoke very often after that. You know, I mean, it was maybe here or there um, until I turned 14 and started high school. And that's when I started, you know, hanging out with friends and smoking more frequently. And that's also when the drinking started. Go to, pardon me, go to high school parties. Um, this was around, you know, 14, 15. And, you know, you're trying to fit in, hang with your friends. And I think a lot of me drinking the way I did at high school parties was basically to throw the middle finger up to my stepdad because I couldn't do it in person. Um, it, it didn't matter what kind of alcohol was at these parties. If it had an alcohol content to it, I was drinking it. It didn't matter if I was drinking beer and then went to whiskey or vodka. I mean, if it was open and somebody let me have some, I drank it. Um, there was a few times, not proud to admit this, but laying it out there, I would get so drunk at these parties that I would be hugging the toilet bowl and, you know, you get the spins, um, you get to a point where you start getting sick so much that you almost physically can't move. And there was a couple of times where people were like, Cody, you got to move. I need to go to the bathroom. And I could not move, could not move. They weren't going to move me. So they literally just peed around my head into the toilet. Oh. That's, uh, yeah, that, that one's not fun. Let's see. Mm. All right. So from probably 14 and a half or so on, I smoked weed pretty regularly, mostly with my friends until and i don't remember how it is that my mom found out that i smoked i had a buddy of mine that i hung out with all the time that um his uncle when he was two had purposely dropped or knocked off the stove a pot of boiling oil onto him so his back the backs of his arms and you know his butt and backs of his legs part of his neck you know literally was like a scene out of freddy krueger so he'd have to go to Galveston like once a month to get skin grafts. And, you know, that kid's pain, I think, subconsciously is why him and I kind of clicked real well because I had my pain. He had his pain from growing up. So we were hanging out one day. My mom comes home. And like I said, I don't remember how the conversation came up, but we started talking about getting high. So my mom and I started getting high when I was together when I was 16. Um, I didn't know until we'd gotten high that first time that she'd been getting high most of her life. Um, so from basically 16 until the day she died, uh, anytime we would get together, we would smoke together. And I didn't mind it. I'm a, well, I didn't mind it at all, but I could understand it more when, you know, she got cancer and I know she justified. She always kept saying like, Oh, weed's the reason that, you know, I've, I've survived so long with cancer. And she rocked that cancer for roughly 12 years before she passed. But she always said that weed was the reason, you know, and I kept trying to tell her, don't do chemo. 
whatever she she uh the medical foreplay from the doctors is what kept her on the the toxic drugs mm-hmm. um let's see I lost my spot oh okay so um I had when I lived in Wichita after being my first ex split up uh when I got my own place for the first time I decided to have a little party and I would have called him my best friend at the time um we're friends but he had this younger sister that had the world's biggest crush on me so she came over and she also had the best uh, pot hookup that I knew of. So I'm like, hey, can you go get me some weed for this party? She's like, yeah, how much do you want? So I gave her money for two ounces. And she's like, okay, I'll be back in a little bit. A couple hours go by and I'm like, dude, where's your sister? So he calls her. She's like, I'm on my way back. So another hour goes by and she calls me in, uh, directly and she goes, get everything out of your house. And then she just hung up. Well, I'd already been drinking, doing some coke and didn't think anything of it so the next day uh i don't know probably roughly before noon i get this log pounding on the door and it's two cops they show me the warrant um they come through search my house they found where i hid the coke um they walked out of my apartment with two grocery sacks full of my collection of bongs pipes a couple of hookahs uh um took me to jail they released me on my own recognizance i was home that night um coming to find out because my buddy came over to uh, see how everything was going coming to find out about a mile from my apartment his sister got pulled over and she got so spooked that she ratted me out because they're like where who did you get this for because of, of course she's like it's not mine it's not mine so she tells him me gives him my phone number and my address doesn't say anything about the guy that she got the weed from so the weed uh, um, I obviously didn't get the weed but the coke is what they were trying to get me on well you have to have a certain amount of cocaine and because they have to test it three times to get the same result conclusively and the uh, the testing labs were so backed up that after a year the statute of limitations had run out so i never even went to court for that so that was a praise god moment for me that you know i didn't have to do any jail time for having a wildly illicit drug and haven't done it since then i learned my lesson at least on that uh let's see where are we going after that okay so um even though i quit doing coke that didn't mean i wasn't going to sell it i sold drugs for uh, too many years. I don't even know the number of years. Um, but up and you know, off and on up until about two years ago, actually, I didn't sell for a long time after, um, the ex and I met, but, um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine that I knew from way, way back when I was in printing, uh, you know, I ran into him and I'm like, do you have some? And he's like, yeah, how much do you want? I'm like, I don't know, just a quarter ounce. So he sells me that and he's like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to help me out with some of this? And instantly I'm just like, okay. So I started selling quarter pounds for him for a while and I didn't sell to anyone. Like I only had maybe a handful or so of people that I would sell to and they would sell regularly enough for me. You know, I wasn't really 
making much money off of it. It was basically enough to um, pay for what I smoked. Um, and two of those people that I sold to were my oldest daughter and my ex's old, my ex's oldest daughter. Um, you know, they would come by once or so a week and, um, it's funny cause when I stopped selling, they stopped talking to me and I'm not going to say that's the reason why, you know, I, I think a lot of it came down to. Uh, the coincidence is weird that they stopped talking to me when I stopped selling. Um, but I know that, you know, looking back on everything when, when they were growing up, they basically never knew me as sober, whether I was high, um, drunk. I remember when we lived in Oklahoma, one of my daughter's boyfriend or my ex's daughter's boyfriend, one of his friends had made a comment to me one time. He's like, man, I've never seen you without a beer in your hand. And I was like, man, I always have a beer in my hand. Um, but back then, you know, I wouldn't start drinking until like on the weekends. It was at least noon before I'd start drinking. Um, not that that's anything to brag about, but it's out there. Um, uh, after I had moved out of that apartment, I met a lady that um, was training to be a pharmacist. Her and I hit it off pretty good. Uh, it, it was shortly after we met that I found out that she was doing a lot of the pharmaceuticals. And I don't know if any of you know what somas are. Man, those are powerful. So mm -hmm. it got to a point where every day for breakfast, I was doing a couple of Lortab 12s and a soma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a real, that's one of the reasons I'm not a real big pill person because doing enough of those things, it's a, uh, that's what started like pain pills now, even just like a lower tab five. Um, they make me itchy. I don't like being itchy, but she's also the person that showed me how to rock up Coke on a spoon with a candle. And once I learned how to do that and started smoking crack, it went downhill from there for a while. I mean, a while. Um, there was one time me and one of her friends would go pick up some more Coke so we can make some more crack. And I ran a stop sign, and I remember it vividly. It was this lady driving a uh, red Beretta, and she had blonde hair, and her kid was sitting in the back seat. And when I hit her car, like I said, everything was going in slow motion. My brain instantly went into try and turn the key. Okay, the car started. I started to speed off. And I'm not going to use the expletive that the guy sitting on the front porch used, but he was like, hey, get the F back here. I heard that for a second, and I just kept going. I drove 90 down, I think it was like a 35, 40-mile-an-hour zone for about eight miles nonstop, blown through red lights, blown through stop signs. We get back to my uncle's where I was staying, and we spent an hour out there, that guy and I, scraping red paint off my bumper. Um Never heard anything about it. Uh, there was nothing on the news. I, I watched the news religiously for two days, waiting to see if something came up. You know, I figured if, if the kid had gotten hurt, it'd been on the news or something. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things I've tried to put out of my mind. But again, like the, uh, the moose statue comment, it, it haunts me once in a while. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it was after that accident that I basically gave up the, or the, the crack. Um, 
I did speed for a little bit, but after you're up for eight days and you start hallucinating, seeing shadow people, um, I slept for three days and never touched that stuff again. Oh, let's see. I've had two DUIs, one in Oklahoma after my ex's birthday. Um, and then one here in Kansas City, or not here, but I'm in Cali right now, but in Kansas City, I had one on, I got pulled over on the street that we used to live on. Um, I got probation for the second one for a year, but I couldn't quit drinking because I didn't want to. So after popping enough dirty pee tests, I had to go to court again, and they said, all right, you're going to have to serve your 28 days. And I said, all right, 28 days, it's not bad. I said, now, after these 28 days, am I free and clear of all my charges? She said, yes. And I'm like, 28 days? And the weird thing is, it was probably one of the most relaxing 28 days I've ever had. No phone, no internet. I mean, I would call my ex or my wife at the time. I'd call her every night, you know, just so we could talk. I'd talk to the kids. But it was relaxing being in jail for 28 days. Met some cool dudes. Um, let's see. And you would think after two DUIs, all the money, I've spent over 20 grand just in legal fees on my DUIs, attorneys, um, every P test I had to pay for, court fees, all that stuff. You would have thought I learned my lesson. No, no, no. So this is where it's going to touch home for some of you guys. One fateful weekend, and that's how I started this paragraph. Uh, we as a church body right here, this group right here, aside from a couple of you that are new, decided to get together for our first annual barbecue. <laughs> so unbeknownst to Lance and his family, the, uh, the bit of vodka I had left at my house before I got picked up, um, I brought with me. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to drink this and then I'm going to try and quit. Now, I know how dangerous it is to self-detox without um, medical intervention, but I'm like, man, I'm Cody. It's my way or the highway. I got a handle on this. So, um, what was it? Lance, was it the day of the barbecue or was it the day after? It was the day of the What's Bible that? study. It's okay, a, yeah, yeah. 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 So, we're, we stand up. Hold hands, and I'd been a little shaky that morning. I'm like, oh, it's the energy drinks or it's the coffee. Because I, you know, it, I, yeah. Anyways, trying to come up with excuses already, but that's how I justified it. Um, so we're standing in a circle, and I remember grabbing the hands next to me. And then the next thing I know, I'm waking up on the ambulance. That was my very first seizure. And that was a result of trying to detox without having the proper meds that they give you when you've drank for as many years as I have. Um, five days in the hospital, Lance is up there with me most every day, brought me pizza, we were eating candy, peanut butter M&Ms. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my blood pressure, I didn't realize how bad my blood pressure, I've always, you know, bl blood issues and heart issues running my family, my mom's side of the family, but I didn't realize how bad my blood pressure was. And I always thought when you did your blood pressure, I always thought it was that top number. I didn't realize it was the bottom number. So the highest it was was like 180 over 110 or 112 or something like that. I was definitely in heart attack category. So the nurses were always freaking out. They were getting my blood pressure every hour. 
so finally on the fifth day, you know, I'd asked the nurse, and it was a guy at the time. Um, I said, when am I getting let out of here? He's like, we got to get your blood pressure under 90. I was like, um, no, my ride back to Oklahoma leaves in like a day. I was like, I will walk out of here. And uh, so he he kind of conceded and get, got to a point where if it get it real close to 100 or under 100, they would feel better about it. They wouldn't recommend that I leave, but that's how that went on. Um, um, where am I at here? Uh, oh, yeah. So, again, going back to the hating pills, I don't even like taking aspirin, not that it makes me itchy. But um, as an award for having my first seizure and trying to detox for myself, I was prescribed four different prescriptions. So I'm like, yes, man, I overachieved so hard that I hate pills so much. Now I have to take them for the rest of my life. Uh, and, you know, even then I still didn't learn my lesson. Got back from Oklahoma, kept drinking. I'd go to work, come home, drink. There would be times where I would go three or four days without even eating because I was drinking my food. Um, let's see. Okay. That that prefaces into the very last Bible study we had before this one right here. We're doing Bible study. I drank earlier that day. I never drank during Bible study. Not that that makes a difference, really. I was still drunk already. Um, I don't remember leaving the group or anything, but Lance calls me at like 8.30, and he's like, dude, what happened, man? You just kind of fell off. And I was like, man, I don't know if I blacked out. It's like I, I didn't feel like I blacked out. I didn't feel like I passed out. I just, you know, it was like I, I lost time. So Lance says, if you don't call 911, I'm calling the sheriff to have him come do a wellness check. And I'm like, oh, we ain't having no cops over here, so I call 911 and told her what was going on and the paramedics and the fire department were there before I even got off the phone with the 911 operator so you know they bust me up to the ER I'm laying there waiting they hook me up with an IV right away laying there waiting 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 I, I hate hospitals broke my neck and waited for 10 hours to go to the hospital broken a few bones waited hours and hours before I went to the hospital um, so I'm sitting there dreading this hospital when they take my blood this lady comes in from the detox department upstairs and she says, do you want to know what your blood alcohol content was? I was like, yeah, sure. I'm curious. It was 0.4 something. So, you know, the legal limit is 0.08. So I was, um, definitely intoxicated, but for the most part, you know, I mean, it just, it felt normal for me because I've been doing it so long, obviously. So she asks me, she's like, we've got this detox program and I would recommend it, but she goes, I'm not gonna send you up there if you don't feel fully committed. And she goes, do you wanna give it a shot? And instantly I said, yes, because I'd had the realization that um, suddenly I wanted to quit drinking because I wanted to. It wasn't that I had a wife nagging me about it or kids nagging me, you know, like you need to do this, you know, for mm -hmm. the family or that, you know, I just decided, no, I need to quit drinking for me. Right. Not because somebody's pressuring me to, you know, back when I didn't want to quit, I decided at that point I wanted to quit. So I'm in detox for five days, met some more cool people. Um, and for my reward for that, I got it. I got prescribed more pills. And so now, um, as a, as a, as a prize, I'm up to nine pills every day. 
including an anxiety pill, which is great. Um, so, you know, today is day 14 for my sobriety. I'm still on the waiting list to get into an inpatient treatment program in Kansas City. But, um, um, you know, praise God, my dad and stepmom graciously had allowed me to come out here to California with them until the um, um, rehab center had a bed for me. So I got to check in with them every every couple of days, or I've been calling every day. But if I don't check in with them every two uh, if, for two weeks, they take me off the list. Mm-hmm. Not letting that happen. Um, quitting drugs for me has never been the issue. I mean, you know, like with the speed. I, once I woke up, never touched it again. Quitting coke, the day I quit, never touched it again. Didn't go through any detox-like symptoms or, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That didn't matter. Um, but drinking has always been my thing. Um, it's been the hardest thing for me to quit. And a lot of it's because I didn't want to. And the first time I got sober for nine months, um, I drank an entire 30 pack of beer in one day. And I never drank that much beer in one day before. Um, but that day I did. And I don't remember what it was that my ex said to me. She was sitting on the bed and my flip just switched. So I turned around. I'm like, oh, this is where we're going, huh? So I jumped on her, latched onto her throat, started choking her out. Um, this only lasted like maybe two or three seconds because I was, I was yelling at her. My ex was trying to scream. And the only thing that got her off, got me off of her was her daughter running down the stairs screaming. And I jumped up and it scared me for a quick second because like that thud, that quick sudden thought of if nobody had come down those stairs, I might have choked her straight to death. Mm-hmm. And so I left for that night, went and stayed at my son's apartment and, you know, went to work the next day. Wasn't even really hung over after drinking 30 beers. Um, so I had to swallow my pride that time, go home that evening. And, you know, sat down, everybody down at the dining room table and apologized again. Um, but that singular moment I found out before my ex and I, fit, well, after we split up, but before we got officially divorced, um, she said that moment is basically, that was the start of the downfall of our marriage. And I can't blame her, you know? I mean, if I were in her shoes and I jumped on me, choking me out, I'd be like, ah, you know what? I can put up with a lot of your crap, but you trying to kill me, that's not one of them. Um, let's see. So, yeah, I got sober for nine months after that, and I don't remember what it was that caused me to drink again, but I started drinking again. Like I said, I, I enjoy drinking that feeling of, you know, getting out of my head and drinking and drugs for a long time was how I got out of my head. That's just... You know, I saw that's how my stepdad dealt with life. And I'm not going to say that it's all his fault because I'm a grown man. You know, I can make my own decisions. Uh, so, yeah, the um, the drinking, it is pretty much almost cost me everything. You know, relationships. Um, I would say a good portion of it cost me my house, but... My landlord, I'm sure he'd already made the decision to sell the house anyways, but who knows? 
Um, so I started this next bullet point off with praise God while I was in detox the second time, uh, Lance, Lance sends me a picture and it took me a second to, I'm like, whose bike is that sitting in front of my house? And I'm like, wait a minute. Lance has a green bike and a bright orange helmet. So I realized Lance was in Kansas city. I had no idea he was coming up. Didn't know anything about it. It was a surprise, but if by the grace of God, if Melissa's dreams and Lance and his whole family praying about it, if he hadn't been in Kansas city, the week that I had that last week, I would have gotten little to, if anything done. And as far as getting moved or getting packed up and put stuff in storage. And if I had worked something out with the landlord at the time to allow me to stay in that house, I would have just continued down the path of drinking and drinking and drinking. So Lance being there to help me was an answered prayer. And it was more of a godsend than I probably even still realize now. I mean, I know it's a blessing, but there are times where I still think about it. You know, I mean, I'd asked around, you know, trying to see if I could crash on somebody's couch for a couple of weeks till I found another place or anything and nobody could do it. Um, so when, uh, the first time we go back to the house and Lance comes in, he, he, I, I didn't see what his face was, but I'm sure it would have been interesting. Um, I, when Shauna first left, I kept the fairly clean house because I'm like, man, I'm single. I'm going to be a bachelor soon. Or I was a bachelor, but, you know, I wasn't divorced yet. Um, and then, you know, with the drinking and when the, the bouts of depression would come and go, when they would come, they'd hit hard. Um, when I didn't feel depressed, I was on cloud nine. But it got to a point where with the depression, I'd get to, I'd go through spells where they'd last a little bit longer and longer. And, you know, that was exacerbated by the drinking, obviously. And it just got to a point where I just stopped caring. You know, I, I, I didn't necessarily care about my health anymore. Obviously, I didn't want to die, but I wanted to continue drinking. The drinking was definitely, I felt like it was helping me get over the trauma of my ex leaving not having somebody to come home to like I was used to, um, you know, sitting there on the couch during dinner or something, you know, talking about my day or, or talking about her day or, you know, cracking jokes, you know, the silence and, and the house was deafening, if you will. You know, it's like that show alone where these competitors, you know, they all, they all talk about one of the hardest things to do on the show is deal with the isolation. And, you know, I had friends across the street, you know, Lance and I would talk every day. Um, I had other friends that I, that I text or talk to, but it just, it wasn't the same. Um, I don't know I, that I think that's a lot of what led into the depression the way it did. Um, but yeah, my house got to a point where it was completely trashed. Um, I'd be, I'd sit there and cook dinner if like, a wrapping paper or something would hit the, the kitchen floor. I'm like, I'd look down at it. I'm like, eh, whatever. You know, so it got to a point where I would just step on it or kick it to the side. And that's the way everything got. Um, I would blow snot rockets on the carpet. Didn't care. 
Um, that, yeah, just like I said, I didn't care. It, it was getting to a point, um, especially knowing that I was getting ready to have to move. Dude, my faith was starting to wane. You know, the one day a week I looked forward to was Thursdays with you guys doing Bible study. Um, but then, you know, like Thursday night when Bible study was over, I'd hit the bottle again. You know, the depression would creep back in. So um, the when Lance was helping me move, I basically took what I needed to start over, whether it's a studio apartment or whatever. Um, I didn't clean out the house because I sunk, when I first took that house over, I sunk 30 grand of my own money into that house. Um, never asked the landlord for help with anything. Um, I maintained the property because I know how to do it, or as far as like, you know, maintenance on the property. That place got an entirely blown out and remodeled kitchen, all brand new appliances. I redid the bathroom to a point where it almost looks like something out of a high-end hotel um, with all the tile, floor to ceiling and everything like that. Blew out other walls, made the house look bigger. Um, and when he told me that he wanted to sell the house, you know, it was like a punch in the gut. And I tried to work with him a couple of times on figuring out a way to keep it. And he's like, no, I just want to sell it. You know, he cashed out his 401k. So I don't know if he was looking at selling the house they were in and, you know, getting taking the money from this house. And one of the reasons I didn't worry about cleaning out the house from everything else, because there's a lot of stuff there that my ex didn't even want to take because she didn't need it. So I got stuck with it. So I figured I'm not going to worry about cleaning this house out because he's going to make money because of what I'd done to the house as far as all the remodels and everything like that. So I was like, if he's going to spend a couple of bucks to clean the house out, you know, slap a new coat of paint on it or something, then, you know, the money he's going to make off of the house versus what the house was worth when I took it over, didn't care. Um, so when Lance and I were unloading my van at the uh, storage unit, <laughs> this is nothing to laugh about, but I don't know. I, that's how, I'm laughing because that's how I'm dealing with my paint. Um, so we're cleaning my van out, and this was probably two plus years worth of accumulation of my van between trash, um, work materials, tools, whatnot. So we start finding pint-sized bottles of vodka. And it had gotten to a point where um, I graduated basically from driving drunk to drinking and driving. And I started doing that because my drinking had progressed to a point where I'd have to take a few sips in the morning just to control the shakes and everything. And after I'd done that for a while, the bottle started traveling with me to work. Um, so there were times where I was drinking at work, drinking on the way home, taking a few sips on the way to work. And if the bottle emptied out while I was driving, I would just check it over my shoulder or I would stuff it down behind my seats. Um, so my storage unit number is F117. Me and Lance were joking. It's like over and under the number of bottles. And then the number kept getting higher and it kept getting higher and it kept getting higher. It just kept going. It's like there were layers of stuff and then vodka bottles, layers of stuff and then vodka bottles. So even when we got to where we could see the floor, that's how I knew it had been. I'd been how long those bottles had been in there because there was no way where some of these bottles were at the bottom that I could get my hands in there. So my unit number was 117 
And I don't know. I don't necessarily believe that it's a coincidence. I think it, took, it was maybe God's way of going, you see what you've been doing? But um, the amount of vodka bottles that we found in my van was 117. Wow. And oh I think about that all the time. I mean, the fact that I never got caught with those is a blessing in, in itself. Mm. Um, <laughs> I mean, 117 bottles, that is, that's, that's insane. I mean, I've, I've known people that get caught with one beer bottle and 117 empty open containers. No. All right. So now we're getting into the faith portion of this. This is the last section that I got for my testimony. Um, growing up, my mom was religious. She had a Bible in the house. I don't know that I ever saw her reading it. Um, but my dad, because of his Vietnam experiences, uh, he was not a believer in God. He said he believed in something, but it wasn't necessarily God. And that always perplexed me because I'm like, if you believe in something, then it's got to be God, right? Um, they didn't care what I did religiously as long as I kept it outside the house. So I've tried many different faiths. Um, none of them ever stuck. Uh, oh, let's see. Sorry, I lost. Oh, um, during my early drug years, uh, I realistically didn't think about God hardly at all. Um, it just, it was, wasn't one of those things, you know, like now I think about them every day. Um, back then it wasn't a thing. And I think my mom knew about it because she always used to tell me, um, when she knew I was getting into the darker periods of my drug use, like Cody, don't forget about your faith. Don't forget guys that are watching your back. And I always just blew it off. I didn't want to hear it. You know, from coming from one of my parents, just kind of felt like they were preaching at you. You know, you grew up listening to your parents like, don't do this, don't do that. Um, uh, so, I mean, yeah, the um, it wasn't until I had gotten that faithful day that I went down to Lance's and he had baptized me. Um, you know, that day we did, um, baptism Bible study. We rebuked the snow clouds because when I, we woke up that morning, you know, I looked out at the pool. That was one of the first things I did. And I'm like, man, there's snow on the water. And I, I'm like, I, I'm not backing out of it now. Lance wasn't going to let me back out of it. That's why I rode a Greyhound bus to get down there. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, there's snow in the water. So, uh, <laughs> we were... We were sitting there doing the Bible study. We watched a couple of uh, religious documentaries. And then all of a sudden, Lance was like, let's pray. So we prayed about rebuking the clouds, and the clouds go away and everything. And I'm not even joking. It wasn't even five minutes. We look out the window. The sun's shining. There's literally not a cloud in the sky. So I go look at the pool, and I'm like, man, there's no snow, but there's a skim of ice on the top of the pool. Lance, I mean, the first thing he said was, I'm not letting you back out. I'm like, I'm not trying to back up. There's ice on the water, man. So, uh, you know, we let it we let it go for a few hours. It warmed up to, I don't think it was like low 50s for the high that day. But the water was still icy. So Lance graciously started dumping all the hot water heater, or all the water out of his hot water heater. I don't know, it was like 10, 12 buckets trying to warm up this pool. And uh, 
So we get ready for the baptism, go outside, and I'm just, I'm nervous. Not because of getting baptized, because of the water. I hate cold water. Hate it. Uh, so I take my shoes off, take my socks off. I step in the pool. <laughs> Man, I had a, the hardest chill I've ever had run up my legs, up my butt, and into my spine. And I'm like, oh, dude, this is going to suck. This is going to suck. So it's like, dude, you got to sit down. <laughs> I sit down, and as soon as my butt hit that water, here comes the second hardest chill I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, I've got to go all the way under face, head, arms, everything. So, you know, typical baptism, Lance, hand in the middle of my back, holds my nose, <laughs> cross my arms over my chest. I went down. He immediately pulls me back up. He's like, run in the house. <laughs> Best hot shower I've ever had in my life. Um, I definitely felt I've been baptized once before. Also in a kiddie pool, but it was hot that day. Um, but when Lance baptized me that day, uh, I definitely felt the spirit move in me. It was a different feeling that I'd ever had from anything else in my life. Um, and when I went back, and, you know, my my wife was excited for me to go down there and do it because she had her faith, but she never really expressed it in front of me because she knew how my stepdad was. She knew how I was raised, and I didn't talk about God or Jesus with her the entire time that we were married up to that point, which was over a decade. Um, so when I got back home, you know, I was definitely still filled with the Spirit and she even admitted to me that night when I was home, you know, I prayed over food, the food and it, she came up with this term where I was extra Jesus-y um, because, you know, that's almost all I really wanted to talk about. I was constantly reading the Bible. Um, I was wanting to do Bible studies with them. My boss's oldest son, I would talk to him and he's got some mental issues from when he was in the military. So I'd pray with him. We'd do some impromptu Bible studies over the phone. He had actually come to the house a couple of times from 45 minutes away to do Bible studies with me. Um, it took her a little while to get used to the drastic change from when I went down there to the way I was when I came back a few days later. Like it was, she said it, I was a completely different person. She honestly didn't know who I was. And not that that stopped me with the drinking. Um, just for a little while, I definitely wasn't drinking as much. Um, so, uh, let's see. There was this church right around the corner. And after all the years of trying different churches and everything, um, uh, being heavily tattooed the way I am, shaving my head, you know, I, I, I fit into a stereotype. Not that I necessarily want to. It's just that's the way people perceive me if they're going to read a book by its cover. So I was leery about going to church, but when we, the day I decided to go, um, we show up, and when we the first thing I see when we walk through the front, I mean, literally, the first thing I see is a dude wearing shorts and a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon t-shirt. And I was like, this is the place to be. So we attended that church for, I don't know, two, three years. And um, after they had bought a new a bigger building which was even closer to the house than the old church um one july the pastor had thrown out this challenge for tithing 
as Lance knows, um, tithing is a dirty word that pastors just shouldn't talk about in church. And, you know, the, my pastor, Pastor Matt, at the time, he basically said the same thing. He's like, you know what, guys? Most pastors don't like talking about it, but it needs to be brought up. Mm-hmm. So he put out this tithing challenge, and, um, you know, basically, obviously, 10% is your first fruit. The wife and I looked at each other, and we both just nodded our heads. So we committed, filled up the little card, saying that we were going to do it. And from that point on, the whole time we were attending that church, literally, I mean, literally every week, 10%, 10%, 10%. Sometimes it hurt, um, you know, as far as bills and everything at home. But um, one of the bigger parts of my testimony that I've given to other people is how God moved in our lives when we started being obedient with our finances. Um, it's weird to describe some of it, but um, I don't think things just started looking up. And it's after we started tithing that the house that I just moved out of, that was presented to me because the, the landlord we went to church with them went and looked at it and I'm like yeah, I don't know and then the wife and her mom get into an argument a couple of times and finally she called me at work one day she's like just pull the trigger let's go let's do it um, so when I was starting to demo on the house there's the ex and I had, had several conversations about how we were going to pay for the remodel and I'm like we'll do it little bits at a time it's going to take a while anyways well a few weeks later I got home from working on that house after I'd been at work and the ex walks around the corner and gives me this letter. And that's when I found out that when my stepdad was in the military, his um, military life insurance policy, he had added me as a beneficiary for $20,000. I had no idea. I figured he might have changed it because he didn't like me. He might have just forgotten about it. But again, it was another blessing from God. So I'm like, dude, this solves the problem on how we're going to pay for everything for the house. So. 99% of that money, I mean, we paid off a couple of bills, one credit card, but 99% of that money went into um, buying all the appliances. I mean, everything went into the house. And that's one of the reasons I'm still pretty sore about having to get rid of the house. But it's one of these things where um, being obedient the way that we were, I couldn't deny that it was God moving in our lives. It wasn't you know, somebody handing me a check or a house or something. It was, I couldn't deny the correlation between the obedience, the way we started it and how everything quickly started to fall into place. I mean, at that point, I'm like, all right, there's no way God isn't real. This is all too uncanny. Um, now this is, I'm sure a lot of this has to do with the way I was raised and everything and poor life decisions that I've made. Um, but when things start going good for me, it doesn't matter what area of life it is, religion, um, relationships, or anything. When it starts going good, I've got to find a way to stomp on it. And Lance had brought this up when he came to help me, asking, and I'd never thought about it, but asking me if I felt like I didn't deserve things to go good for me. And that's why I'm always, you know, subconsciously finding a way to not have things go good for me when it's going good i don't know i'm just maybe i'm just so used to everything being crap that that's you know that's what i'm used to uh so i mean yeah there's there's that um let's see 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I've got one bullet point here. It says, as good as things would get in my life, the one thing that didn't was the drinking. I'm literally the statistical tragedy of basically losing everything, basically, because I haven't lost everything yet, but praise God. Um, almost hitting rock bottom for, you know, losing my marriage. Uh, my kids don't want to talk to me. Um, losing the house, all that stuff. For me to make the hard change to get sober. Um, you know, I feel like I was talking to Lance about this the other day. There are times where I felt like I'm 18 and moving out of my parents' house for the first time, you know, trying to figure out life uh, for the first time on my own. And essentially, that's what I'm doing, except I'm not 18. I'm 45. So, you know, that's a, a, a bit of a, a mind punch. Um, I will say... Over the course of, well, next month would be a year since me and the ex separated. But over the course of this last year, um, when I knew that I was having some of the darkest times of my life, uh, I will admit I I felt my face slipping sometimes. Um, but like with Lance showing up, the situations in the hotel room that led up to, you know, me getting frustrated and going back to the old Cody of, all right, never mind, this is too hard, or um, I haven't sat down and thought about this logically enough to, there's there's got to be another avenue that we can try to get something worked out. Um, God showed up for that entire week, every day. Something positive happened every single day. Even like the last day, day and a half that we were in the hotel Lance was like, listen, it's getting to a point I just gotta go, you know, financially I just gotta go um, so uh, talked, Lance, well Lance talked to my stepmom and I'd already texted him, asked him if it was possible to come out to California and they said yeah, they'll give me a call later so my mother-in-law paid Lance back the money that he had spent so far on um, coming out there to help, um, paid for my plane ticket. They paid for my new prescriptions and I'm sitting in the living room right now. And it is it, it just, again, like with the house, the inheritance money, um, you know, when my faith was starting to slip, he, you know, he presents himself again. And it's not always, I realized it's not always the biggest prayers that he answers, but that week that Lance was there it made me it made me uh, start to it made me realize that I need to start looking at not always the big picture. The big picture is fine sometimes, but I need to start looking at what's right in front of my face. You know, I can only control what I'm doing right now, right this second, talking to you guys. Um, I can't control like the dog's licking its butt. Can't control that. No point in me getting mad about it. Um, so the, it just. I know God has a plan for me and I just need to even when it's going to be hard in the future um, to remember that just because something's hard or it seems impossible you know I know God's got a plan you know me hitting uh, basically almost falling on my face he stopped me midair 
you know, I believe that everything that's happened up to this second right now, me, talk, me talking to you guys, is part of his plan. You know, hmm. um, I think me getting to a point where I was almost homeless with nothing, was, I think God turned into dad and he bent me over his knee, smacked me on the butt. He's like, all right, dude, this is this, this is what you got. This is what I'm giving you. You need to make the most of it. And I got this workbook with me and Lance when uh, we went to the 50 or half price off bookstore. It's, uh, it's a workbook on men becoming men. And I flipped open the one particular part, flipped open and randomly started reading it. And the last line that I remember is um, it asked the question, do you know how God makes men warriors? And the only answer it was was a one-word answer, and it said hardship. And I'm like, okay, okay. I, I mean, at that one singular moment, I got it. <laughs> so, you know, there will be times when um, things are awesome. Everything feels great. Um, everything's looking up. I got to, I got to learn not to stomp on those. But there are also going to be times where God's putting me through my test. You know, I'm gonna, he's gonna want, um, he's gonna make me walk down that. Uh, unbeaten path with the rocks and the thorns and the brambles and all that with no shoes on, no shirt, whatever. And, you know, I've got to endure that too, because that's all part of, you know, God making me the man that he designed me to be. So, um, while I know that, uh, there's not going to be anything overly easy, um, for the rest of my life, but especially putting my life back together and not rebuilding, but building. I've, I've got, I've got, you know, God laid the foundation and I've got to build on top of what he's, he's laid down for me. So with that guys, that's the end of it. Praise God, Cody. Thank you for uh, sharing with us. Um, You're welcome. Oh, it's wonderful. That's good, man. I'm proud of you for sharing that and being, being willing to uh, be open about that and and so i want to not take too long but i definitely want to kind of share what happened on our side of things to go help cody and so and the reason why i'm doing this is not yeah yes it's just to show you that being used by god is not easy it's not a place of comfort it's not you know it's much like peter walking on water being asked to walk out and step on the water you know, by Jesus. So what I'm saying is that being used by God is much like, you know, it's a fearful thing, you know, at times. And it's a place of uncertainty and 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 it's a moment of where, you know, not everything's laid out and not the plan is made fully known. And you don't know how things are going to work. And, you know, but that's what that's real trust. That's faith, you know, not knowing the answer, not knowing the outcome, not knowing how it's all going to work out and that you're going to come through it. OK. You know, because sometimes God asks people to go through things and they don't end up okay. See, there's many people in the world right now giving up their lives for Christ and their families and everything else, you know. And so we can never assume that that's the outcome. All we can assume is God will be with, be with us through it and that he will be rewarded. And, you know, and so kind of going back and the little backstory on Cody's story, which he didn't say, he was he's been unemployed for a while. And he had no, he had money, but he used his money for booze and stuff. And so that yesterday, two days, August 3rd, uh, was his kickout date and he had no job and he had no house. 
And his van that we cleaned out was going to be his home. But when I got there, it wasn't cleaned out. And, you know, and so, and he and agreed that, like, if God didn't have that happen and we show up, or my show up, and God, um, he'd probably be at a truck stop right now drinking in his van. And so, after his Cesar Chavez moment, we call it, on his first Bible study, um, Melissa, my wife, she doesn't have dreams all the time, but she does have dreams. And they're powerful dreams. She started having dreams that I was supposed to go be with Cody. So the first time she had the dream, she's like, you're supposed to go be with Cody. I was like, not right now. And so she's had three of these dreams of me with Cody at his house, helping him get stuff done, kind of telling him where we need to be and what we need to be doing, you know. And then that, again, oddly enough, because the first time he, he had his seizure was after Bible study, and this time after Bible study he had his seizure, you know. And so – uh, after that, I was talking to Melissa and Melissa was, she said, Lance, and she, you know, talking to me, she's like, if you don't go be with him, tough stuff. Yeah. Cody's going to die. Mm-hmm. Now on his first time he had his seizure, I told him cause his wife, ex-wife was willing to stay in his house. I told him like, Cody, if you don't go into rehab. And if you don't get this taken care of, you're going to lose everything. He's like, well, I got to keep my house. Got to keep my job. I was like, you're going to lose it. And, um, uh, of course, he lost it, you know. And this time, talked to him on the phone. I was like, Cody, if you don't go to rehab, you're going to die. That's it. That's the option. You know, this is your warning. This is God working in your life. You have to get it right. And so I, hearing, I trust my wife, right? And my wife doesn't lie she doesn't have any anything about her like that so you know it was encouraging to me because god doesn't just talk to me he talks to my wife and sometimes he's not talking to me and he's talking to my wife and a wise man listens to his wife especially when god's talking and so i took what she said seriously and i just knew through logic i was like yeah this is it for cody and but she knew through the spirit that yeah hey this is really it and that cody's about to meet his end if something doesn't change in his life and so I go in the room and I pray, right? And so I'm, I'm praying. I'm like, God, because I have never been away from my kids. My, my oldest is going to be 12, about to be 13, you know, and I have never been away from my kids. I've been away from my wife once. Mm-hmm. I'm a very protective dad and like be there, be present, take care of whatever needs to be care of. And, you know, and so it is really hard for me to leave. And, but so I'm in there praying, I'm like, God, is this what you want me to do? And I felt in, in my mind, in my spirit, God was like, get up, flip a quarter. And so, and let it be heads. And I was like, okay. And that the Bible calls it casting lots. It's the thing. And the Uman of Thurman in the Old Testament, it was a thing there. You know, when they picked Bartholomew in the New Testament, drawing straws, casting lots. It's like, it's a thing. Just let you know, it's biblical, you know? And so I get up, I'm like, all right, Lord, flip a quarter. I reach into my thing of quarters. I pull it out and he got to let it be heads. It was heads on both sides. Oh my goodness. And I'm like, <laughs> what? I threw it down. I picked another quarter. Heads on both sides. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I walked out Melissa. I was like, Melissa, look at this. How is it like there's these quarters have a person's face on both sides. I've never seen quarters like these this before. I was like, I guess that I'm not even gonna bother flipping it. What's the point? You know, God said, let it be heads. It's heads, both sides, doesn't matter. 
So I'm like, I guess I'm going, you know? And, and so I go back in the room. I was like, just out of giggles, let's pull out another quarter. Heads on both sides. Pull out another quarter. Hit, heads on both. Four quarters with heads on both sides. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, any more confirmation needed, there you go. And so at that point, you know, as a man trying to figure out how to take care of his family and stuff, and just so you know, we're, we live off of, donations you know and we lost some people that were donating so things have gotten hard and like in uh, hmm. you know you got a good wife <laughs> basically we have enough money to make it till october and you have a good wife when she's like well we just will stop buying groceries Praise God for a good wife. Praise God. And she's like, God will make a way. You you have to go. So I was like, okay, I agree with you. I have to go. I mean, there's not an option because God's giving you dreams. I got quarters. You know, we just got to figure this all out, you know, and just trust. Right? And so helping people and being useful for God like I heard a quote that says, the God's provision is blessing is not there so you can sit comfortably at home under a blanket. It's so you can put yourself at risk with the expectation that he will bless you and comfort you. Right? That's what Christianity is. That's what's going after the one lost sheep is. That's what it means to be a believer in Christ Jesus. That like he's not sitting there trying to let you get be a millionaire so you can hide away and never risk anything for him. Right? And so it took a lot of trust to just say, okay, God, you know, you figure it out. You know, you're telling me to do something. I have to do it. There's not an option. But God tells you something to do. You don't, you just do it, you know? And so, um, and then you take care of it. So I got up that money uh, that morning and it felt really weird leaving my family. And I had to ride my bike because the Jeep has really bad gas mileage. And he, Cody's like 400 miles away. And I've never ridden that far, especially in a day. And then, you know, I've ridden 150 miles, but never that far. And then not knowing what I was going into, not knowing financially how it was all going to work out. So it was just like, and I tell you this to praise God, not me, but like, you know, so you just have to do it, you know. And so we didn't understand what was happening because we had a person that was donating uh, consistently praise God for them. And then we had another person that randomly who, and she knows who she is, gave us $300. And we thought that was to replace the money that we lost from the other donations of people, but it wasn't, it wasn't for us. It was to take care of Cody. <laughs> and, um, so we are like, okay, we're going to use this money and that'll at least get some gas money to get up there. And after that, I don't know, we're just winging it all the way, winging it. And so, I I wind up out uh, out there, and Cody winds up having to stay another day in the hospital, you know. So I have to find a place to be. So now I'm like completely alone because Cody knows everything, but he's in the hospital. I don't know anything. I don't know where I'm at, you know, where to get a motel or anything. Riding around on a motorcycle, and it's raining, so it's not like you can just go sit in the parking lot on your phone and figure things out, you know. And so, you know, and after all that we did with Cody. 
and getting him and and helping him with his house and and you know and don't let it underplay how horrible his house was and what alcohol will do to you as a human being oh yeah destroy your your sense of self-respect you know and so i'm like Cody doesn't know I'm talking to uh, his stepmom and, and his dad and trying to figure out the plan of action. Well, before we even went up there, you know, I the plan was that, like, no matter what, either the, Cody wasn't going back to his house, period. I mean, to stay there. It's, it's horrid. And so the plan was that even if we couldn't find him a place to stay and he couldn't go anywhere, he's going to come back home. He doesn't know this. I never told him this, but that was the plan. That, like, if it came down to it, and we couldn't find a place, then Cody was coming back home mm-hmm. with us. And then we'd go from there and figure it out from there, you know. But at the same time, I felt like that wasn't God's plan, but that was like the fallback plan. That Like everybody else in his life didn't want to do anything, then at least there was that, you know. But I didn't feel like that was a plan, but it's kind of a dead end at my house because I'm not close to anything. I don't have internet, you know. I don't have good cell phone reception. So there's no place to grow and move out and try to get better. You know, and so I was talking to Claire, and then praise God because uh, she sent eight hundred dollars to help uh, pay for the motel rooms, yeah, and to pay for some food and to help recoup. And so all together, it was almost nine hundred dollars is what we wound up having to spend. Now, just to let you know, we're living on a thousand two hundred fifty dollars a month right now. So that was basically up until that point, that was almost like a month. Basically, what it did is it okay? You got till September now to figure this out. You got weeks before now. You're gonna be dealing with some home issues and you know stuff like that. And so before between the three hundred dollars and the eight hundred dollars, and then we had, we got Cody his stuff that he needed and stuff. It basically wound up becoming a wash. Like it was like it never happened. You know, financially for us, you know, it was a wash. It didn't cost us anything, but we don't have anything to show for it either. But praise God, because he provided, right? You know, and and that's the thing. And and that's what I want to encourage you guys. You know, when God has you to do something, don't expect safety and like secure and you're in your vault and nothing can touch you and everything's fine and you got a plan. And it's not like that. When like, you know, God asked his disciples to leave their income and leave their families to travel with him. There wasn't like, hey, guys, you got a 401k. I got a good bank account. You're good to go. I got it covered. No, he's like, no, just come. Come with me. You know, I have a plan. Just trust the plan and don't think you have to have all the answers to be obedient because you don't, you know. And so it's awesome looking back because I'll tell you right now, it it's like that that saying courage is not having is not the absence of fear it's having fear but doing the right thing anyways mm-hmm. and that's faith faith isn't the absence of worry or concern or anything you know it's knowing that despite all that you're still going to do the right thing you're still going to do what pleases god and when he's put onto your heart you know and it's weird to think that like right now if my wife was in disobedience and fear and if i was in disobedience fear cody wouldn't be giving his testimony right now he'd be at a truck stop getting drunk Right. You know, but God loves Cody enough That's right. to move heaven and earth to make sure that doesn't happen. And then we have to decide, do we want to be a part of that love for people? Do we want to be involved with God's plan to, to call his children home, to take care of those who aren't 
getting it right right now, but God sees great value in them and has a plan for their lives, you know? And so we have to put our love into action. We have to step out in faith and trust in Almighty God. If all of you say you trust God with your salvation and you don't trust Him with your finances and you don't trust Him with your willingness to step out and do something for Him, you don't trust Him with your life and your salvation. Don't lie to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Because one, you won't see forever. So it's easy to see, I trust God with my salvation. It's easy because you got to die to get that one. Mm-hmm. How about some immediate action? I trust God with my finances. I trust God with my children. And one of my things in my life is I've been homeless as a kid. I've gone hungry as a kid. And it's one thing I never want for my children ever. And I fight against it, you know, but it's one of those things that like I have to even put that on the altar that like overprotectiveness and just let God deal with it, you know, and trust him that he's going to come through if I'm obedient, if I just obey him. And that's what he's asking for. And I'm glad that God allowed me to go down there and be with Cody. And I'm glad that I have a faithful wife that's willing to sacrifice with me and understands uh, the importance of ministry. And that even my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter, Ariana, she's the same way. You know, so praise God. That's of great value, you know. And so I want to read a Bible verse, and then I'll be done. It's not on your papers. It's Hebrews 11. 33 through 40. And there's a certain line I want to point out of here. So I'm just going to read it. Of course, that's the faith chapter. It says, Through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fires, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. And women received back their dead raised to life, but others were tortured, not accepting release to obtain resurrection to a better life. And others experienced mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawed apart, murdered with the sword. They were bent. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. This is the line. It's Hebrews 11.38. The world was not worthy of them. That gets me. They wandered in the desert, in the mountains, in the caves, and opening it in the earth. Verse 39. And these were all commended for their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised. For God provided something better for us, so that they would be made perfect together with us. What does that mean, guys? It's really easy in Christianity to get best life now. I don't see best life now in Hebrews 11. I don't. And that line, the world was not worthy of them. It's easy to get the perspective of the world that God's provision is always getting what you need or having your needs met. But look what we just read. These people were murdered, saw in the two two destitute, goat stins, afflicted, ill-treated. They kept their faith. So I'm telling you guys this because, listen, you're not going to get to heaven and go, man, I'm so glad I played it safe for you, God. I just played it safe. I stayed at home. I did nothing. I made sure I had my needs met and worried about nobody else's. Not going to happen. What's going to happen is if you're faithful, you're going to be, God, I'm so glad I risked it all. I'm so glad. I put it all out there, not hold back, to see what happened. 
I challenge you guys. Try it. It's scary. <laughs> Believe me. You can have all the faith in the world. Jesus had all the faith in the world. He cried in the garden. It's normal. I comfort myself with that. I think about that. I'm like, okay, God. <laughs> Jesus cried. I can cry. And people who aren't doing it was like, oh, you just have to have faith. I do. That's why I'm doing it. It doesn't mean there's not an effect of the effort. Right? And so you don't, you can't tell me that John the Baptist didn't have a, a, a rumbly tumbly eating honey and, you know, locusts and gone hungry. Paul said he went hungry. Look at all that Paul went through. You say, that's lack of faith? No, that was faith in action. That's true biblical faith. That you don't know how it's going to work out. But you're willing to do it. That's what it takes. That's what it's going to take when we get to the end of time. If you can't practice it now, don't expect to practice it when the mark of the beast comes. Don't expect to practice it when they're banging on your door. You have to practice it now so you're prepared in your heart that you're willing to stand with God. And you go, okay, God, I've already trusted you with everything. This is easy for me now because it's just the next step of what I'm already doing. But if you wait, if you delay, if you hold on to your finances, you know, and you don't spend your time and your efforts and you're too busy entertaining yourself or trying to make yourself happy instead of investing into other people's lives, you're going to fail miserably. I promise you that. Mark my words. You have to do it. We all have to do it. And praise God because it's the purification of your faith. The Bible says judge yourself now so you don't have to be judged later. So engage, practice it, work it out. I promise you, God will reward you. There's a, there's a reward at the end of all this. It's not always easy. It's not always exciting. It's at times, sometimes it can be terrifying. It can be lonely. It can be all these things. None of these things they want to talk about it in church. Because, because guess what? It's real, right? No relationship is without its cost and an expense. Don't think your walk with God does not cost. It does. It costs you everything. You get salvation for free, but at the expense of everything else, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. So we have to remember, guys, and I encourage you this and all this to the glory of God. I'm asking you, try it. Step out in faith. Do more than you think you can. Do something that doesn't make any sense to you at all because God is telling you to do it. See what happens. Put God to the test. Because listen, if you can't test God now on these things when he tells you to do them, how are you going to do it with your own salvation? I mean, come on, think about that. You're expecting God to save your soul from sin so you don't have to burn in hell so you can live forever with him. But you can't do it on the daily. You have to learn to do it on the daily. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's going to take. Mm -hmm. So I praise God that God saved Cody's life. I'm convinced what my wife said is true. Cody would have died mm -hmm. and he would not be here. But he is here to give glory and testimony to God, which he did, about his life and what God's doing in his life, and that his story is not over. And praise God, people who have funded this ministry and gave us money are what helped make that possible. It's a partnership. And that's the effect of it all. And so I'm asking everybody, if you value this ministry, please give to it. Pray about it. Ask God what he would have you to do. I, you come to my my family, we're sacrificing everything. I mean, I can show you in like ways people don't even know, you know. And so 
money is being well spent. It's not being frivolously bought of anything. You know, it's being put 100% towards keeping this rolling. It's been doing that for 2.8 years. Praise God. He has kept us going for almost three years now. You know, and so I praise God that Cody's here with us. I praise the people that have come before that helped fund this stuff because they have a part in what God did in Cody's life and his parents, you know, they have a part in it. But listen, there's more people out like Cody. There's more people out there that need salvation. There's more people that need someone that just love them, not just condemn them, but just love them and do it sacrificially. Where there's no return, it's just you're doing it because God wants you to. And so I hope that has a strong impact on your heart and your mind. And no matter if you don't stay with this Bible study group, that's fine. Go somewhere else. But if wherever you go, you need to do it. You need to support your ministry you're part of. You need to give your life to Christ and do something daring. And stop sitting on the sidelines. Step out in faith and see what God will do with your life. Because that's what he needs. The work, look, harvest is great. The laborers are few. Be a laborer or support the laborers. Do something, right? So anyways, praise God. I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we're kind of long. But dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for all that you have are and doing in our life. Thank you for saving Cody's life and, and blessing him and being with him. And, and allowing us to be a part of it as a ministry. Because it's not just me. I went down there. But people who give or help make that possible where there's funds to do that. And so we praise you and we thank you for those people too, Father. It's it's a glorious thing to see how these things can work out and that we can all be willing to sacrifice and push forward to, to your glory and to bring your children home and to call those lost sheep back. And so, Father, we glorify you. We praise you. We thank you. You have saved our lives. You're allowing us to help save other people's lives in your glory. We're so happy to be the, considered the body of Christ, that we can be his hands and feet, that we can be part of that shepherding leadership that goes out and finds the lost sheep and not sit back and expect you to do it or somebody else to do it, but that we have a responsibility towards each other to make this happen. And so we praise you, we glorify you in this, and we love you very much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you feel so led of the Lord and want to know how to donate to this ministry outreach, please visit brotherlance.com and scroll down to the bottom of the main page for the PayPal link. Thank you, and may God's blessing rest upon you. Brotherlance.com